0: What is the mission of the church, and how do we go about accomplishing this mission? Those are a couple of questions we hope to answer today on this edition of Abounding Grace. Wooing and pursuing, seeking and saving that which is lost. That's God's heart, His desire, and as such, the mission He bestows upon us, His church. You see, we're to be about the Father's business, just as our Lord and Savior was. And that is His business, seeking and saving. So then, the question is, how does He do that? Well, as we'll find out today, here on Abounding Grace, the primary role is found in preaching. The Sovereignty of God in Preaching is the title of our message. We're back in Luke chapter 6, looking at verses 12 through 16. It's a little mini-series on this foundational aspect of preaching. Won't you join us? From Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose, here's Pastor Gary Wagner with this edition of Abounding Grace.
1: The foundation of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think it coincidental that Jesus just happened to choose 12 apostles when there had already been 12 tribes of Israel? I mean, he could have picked seven or... 9 or 14 or 19. Is it coincidental that he chose the same amount as the patriarchs that represented the entire community of God in the Old Testament? Of course it wasn't a coincidence. It was deliberate. It was self-conscious. When the Lord Jesus Christ chose his 12 apostles, he was saying I am coming to restore the church of the twelve tribes of Israel that had fallen apart with apostasy. I have come to restore the covenant community of God. You see, the church of the twelve tribes of Israel in the Old Testament just got worse and worse and worse. And in 720 BC, the northern kingdom had gotten so bad and so corrupt and so apostate That God had to bring in the Assyrian army to pretty much wipe them out. In fact, to such a degree, today we refer to the ten lost tribes of Israel. But then the two southern tribes of Judah did not learn from northern Israel's experience. So in 586, the two southern tribes of Judah had become so apostate So rebellious against God and so hard in their hearts that God had to raise up the Babylonians to come and destroy them and carry them away into captivity for 70 years. The church of the 12 tribes of Israel waxed worse and worse and worse. Yet it was a church that God loved. It was a church that Jesus Christ loved and God was not content to let this church that he, that he had redeemed out of this world and covenanted to himself as his friends to allow it to perish off the face of the earth. So 2,000 years ago, God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to earth with the mission of rescuing and rebuilding out of the shambles of this apostate and devastated church of the Twelve Tribes, a new church, a restored covenant community of families that would be in a friendly and servant relationship with Almighty God, which families... God could lavish His riches and His blessings on as they live faithfully for Him throughout all eternity in an everlasting covenant down through their generations. So when the Lord Jesus Christ came down to earth and chose 12 apostles, it was deliberate. He was saying, God loves His church. God loves these people more than anyone else on the face of the earth, and he is not content to let them go the way of all flesh. He came to save them from destruction. And remember, that is how Paul describes a husband's and wife's relationship in Ephesians 5. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. The Lord Jesus Christ came to restore the covenant people of God. We are on God's heart. And the fact that he chose 12 apostles just as there were 12 tribes of Israel testifies to that fact. Old ethnic Israel rejected the Lord Jesus Christ as his Messiah and therefore was rejected by God, as the fall of Jerusalem testifies to. But that does not mean that God's covenant and God's promises and God's plan for salvation fail to the ground unfulfilled. That plan, that covenant remains in force today. And now the faithful, Restored community that goes back to the days of Malachi and Jeremiah and Isaiah and David, Moses, Abraham, all the way back to Adam and Eve, who were the first members of God's church, remains intact. The Lord Jesus Christ came to keep the community that God loved after purging all the rebels intact in making of that covenant community a great church. that will someday be the praise of all the earth. A fascinating study is of those passages of Scripture where specifically the 12 apostles are referred to in connection with the church. So my sermon today and next week are going to be on those texts from the New Testament where the apostles and the church are mentioned in the same passage. The first passage we're going to look at is in Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to see through this study just how important the 12 apostles that Jesus appointed are to the Christian church. So if you would, turn to Ephesians 2 and we'll look at verse 19. Ephesians 2 19. Now, therefore, ye, and he's referring here to the Ephesians Christians, and most of them are not Jewish. He says, Now therefore ye are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, and whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, notice how this passage begins. Earlier in verses 11 through 16, Paul's talking about God reconciling the Jews and the non-Jews together into one great family, the church, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't have time to talk about the barriers that rose between the Jews and the non-Jews by the middle of the first century. But in Jesus' day... With his death on the cross, God not only reconciled sinners to himself, but in reconciling sinners to himself, he reconciled the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, together, showing that in the church of God, there is no racism, there's no ethnic purity or superiority. We are one in Jesus Christ. Now, notice what God has made out of us in verse 14. He has taken those of us who were strangers, that is, those who were Gentiles along with the Jews and made us all one household. Throughout the New Testament, what is another word for the church? It is the house of God. It can be the household of God, the temple of God. So you see, those who have been reconciled to God, whether Jew or Gentile, by the blood of Jesus, are now considered all to be members of God's household. And notice upon what that household is built. It has a firm foundation, we see in verse 20, having been built upon the teachings of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Now what's the picture here? The picture here is of a great church through the centuries, beginning with the first century when Christ began to rebuild it, now continuing to the end of time, a massive structure that shall someday be more numerous than the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. And no matter how big and how numerous and global that church becomes, the foundation that was laid in the first century is adequate enough to hold and support the entire building, and that foundation is none other than the apostles and the prophets. Now, who were these men? Well, the prophets referred to here, I believe, are those prophets from the first century that shared in the ministry with the apostles, those who were vehicles of divine revelation in the New Testament. That is, those men whom God chose like the apostles Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and prophets like Mark and Luke and a few others. Uh, These were men whom God set his spirit upon and so inspired and superintended them by his spirit that whatever they wrote or spoke while they were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was nothing other than the very word of God himself words that originated in the mind of God, expressing and communicating thought that originated in the mind of God. So that what these prophets and apostles wrote, while they were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was nothing other than the thoughts of God and the words of God. Therefore, totally God-breathed, totally originating with God himself, incapable of error, fully reliable in every word that was spoken and every word that was written. And when the Bible says that these men, these apostles and prophets as vehicles of revelation were the foundation of the whole house of God through the centuries unto the very end of the world and the second coming of Christ, it is not talking about their persons. He's not saying... You should take these 12 apostles and these prophets and make statues out of them and put them around the inside of your church building and every now and then when you go by, say a little prayer, venerate them in some way or another. And of course, get Mary, the mother of Jesus, in there somewhere as well. And then count on the fact that these men and Mary obeyed God more than they were required to. You see, God required them to be perfect, and they were beyond perfect. They were more obedient than any man should be. And so God took all of this extra obedience, all this extra merit that these apostles and prophets built up, and he put it all in a little bank, and now he applies it to your account so that your salvation is not only based on Christ... It is due to the extra merit and extra obedience that these guys stored up. Well, of course, we know better than that. We know that when Christ says the church was founded on the apostles, he wasn't talking about these men as persons, and therefore they are to be venerated and images of them are to be put around the church. No, he's obviously talking about them as vehicles of revelation, as authors of the Word of God. These men in their writings form the very foundation of the Christian church. In other words, the Spirit-revealed written teachings of Christ-commissioned apostles are the doctrinal and organizational foundation of the entire Christian church. Where do we get our doctrines today? Does a church have a council with all of these bishops and leaders of the church who meet together and say, okay, because of this and that, we need some new doctrines here, guys. We've got a number of problems, so let's think up some new doctrines to fix and answer the crises and challenges of our day. So the church simply creates the new doctrines as they are needed. Is that where we get our doctrine? Does someone who is an especially brilliant theologian say, here I am, guys. Here is who you need. I'm an expert in this field. I've been studying the Bible for 40 years. I'll tell you what new doctrines we need. No, where does the church get its doctrine? Where does the church get its understanding of life and its understanding of God? It gets it from the apostles, from the spirit-inspired writings of the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament, as well as the prophets in the Old Testament. That is where the church gets its doctrine. It doesn't get its doctrine from some John Doe who says, hey, I'm a prophet of God. I've got the truth. Here is what God has to say to you. You know, that's what the abolitionist John Brown said as he was terrorizing Kansas and Virginia after listening to some spirit or another and who was eventually executed for being such a wild-eyed fanatic terrorist. Uh, Those aren't the people we want to listen to. No. where do we get our doctrine? How do we know what it is we are to believe? We get it from the apostles, the foundation of the church. When you build a foundation of a house, that foundation pretty much determines a great deal about how you are going to build the rest of that house. Once you start the foundation... That will determine how the rest of the house will be built. And the foundation of the church, the writings of the apostles, are the sources of all our doctrine. We don't get any new truths, no new ethical principles. We don't get anything about God and life and nature from reason, from experience, from man, or from tradition. except. Apostolic tradition inspired by the Holy Spirit found in the Bible. Not only that, the apostles are not only the doctrinal foundation of the church, the apostles are the organizational foundation of the church. How does the church decide how it is going to be organized? Does the church bring in some whiz bang managerial consultant and say, okay, Now here's the newest trend in management. Uh, Then we have a power seminar on managerial principles and we govern the church based on their new ideas. Well, that is what some churches govern themselves by. But that is not the way a faithful church governs itself. We depend on the apostles to show us our organizational foundation. How the apostles organized the early church under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is the way we want our church organized as well. But it's not because the apostles were all that brilliant. Understand now, these things didn't originate with the apostles. Some of these apostles were not the most brilliant men in the world like some of us. In fact, sometimes you see that some of them could be pretty dense people on occasion. But the point is that what they taught while they were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit did not originate with them. It originated with God. And that's why the Bible says that the writings of the apostles in the New Testament and the prophets of the Old Testament are God-breathed. That is what Timothy 3.16 means when Timothy says, All Scripture is inspired of God. And the Greek word for inspired of God means God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. It all originated in his mind. And that is just as your breath originates from none other but you, no matter how close someone else may be standing or sitting to you, The Bible originated not with men. It's not apostle-breathed. It's not prophet-breathed. It's not man-breathed in any way, shape, or form. It is God-breathed. The Bible did not originate in the mind of the men who penned it. It originated in the mind of God. Therefore, the writings of these apostles form the foundation of everything we believe anything we believe about anything we must and we are going to compare with the foundation of the church and we are going to make sure that the church is organized according to the way the apostles of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ said it should be organized now turn if you will to John chapter 17 and let me show you another verse where in Jesus' high priestly prayer to his father, he mentions again the relationship of his church down through the ages with his apostles. John seven sixteen. Here John mentions the men that he chose, the 12 apostles, and he says, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me. And they have kept thy word. Now look at verse 20, neither pray I for these alone, that is these chosen apostles of his, of course, excluding Judas Iscariot, but for them also which shall believe through their word that they all may be one. He says, Lord, I not only pray for my apostles, but I pray for all those down through the centuries to the end of time who will ever become members of my church. That is, true Christians through the word of the apostles and the prophets. There's no other way to become a member of God's church. There is no other way to believe in Jesus except to come to him through the word of his apostles. So faith in Jesus Christ has, as one of its absolute necessary ingredients, faith in the apostolic witness, faith in the word of the apostles, so that down through the centuries, the church is comprised of all those who believe in Christ through the teachings of the apostles. Now, do you know what that means? It is just another way of saying that the acceptance of apostolic doctrine is the very essence of the church. Now, that probably seems so normal and right and true to most of you here at RHC, that you probably are out there wondering why I'm even making such a big deal about it. Well, I guarantee you, That in most of the churches in the South, believe in the South Bay, that is, that is not those who believe. You go to most of the churches in the entire San Francisco Bay Area, and you will find that it doesn't really matter what you believe in order to get into the church. You can believe just about anything you want to believe, you don't have to believe the Bible is the very Word of God or that it is all the truth. You barely have to believe in Jesus. What matters is that you are a seeker of the truth, whatever that may be. It really makes little difference what you believe. You can count yourself as a child of God and as a member of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whereas the Bible clearly says, if you are going to become a Christian, there is a certain set of doctrines you've got to believe And if you don't believe that set of doctrines, you can't call yourself a Christian. Now, I know that runs cross-grain, beloved, with the church in the United States in the 21st century. But there is a certain body of doctrine you've got to believe to become a Christian, and you've got to submit to. You may not understand them all, but you've got to believe them and submit to them as the rule and authority of your life, or you cannot become a Christian. Jesus said, those who believe in me through their word. So that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ involves faith in and submission to the word of God of the apostles in the New Testament and the prophets of the Old Testament.